Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and I'm here today with Rose Ryder and Dan Fitzsimmons on Restitutio Offscript. And today we're talking about patriotism. Patriotism is the feeling of love for one's native country, at least how we're going to be using it here. It could include swearing allegiance. It could include supporting the like an extreme form of patriotism is the slogan my country right or wrong and the opposite of patriotism is the philosophy known as cosmopolitanism which is the idea that you are a global citizen and that you have no native country and every country is your home country <laughs> so it's just that's my aunt actually i didn't know there was a word for that Yes, there is. Uh, I think I got that from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. In general, I want to look at patriotism as just a love of one's country or displays of love for one's country or preference for one's country and kind of follow our cultural analysis framework that we've been using in these episodes so far and look at a couple of examples, some benefits and detriments, and then really stake out a Christian perspective on the subject. And I think that's obviously going to be the exciting part because the Bible actually has a lot to say about Christians in relation to the government. So to get started, I can't help but quote to you Germany's national anthem. Oh, I'm not familiar. <laughs> it's so funny because Germans these days are... Patriotism is almost a dirty word. And they're so careful not to express their own love of country over against any other country because of the, the last two world wars <laughs> were due to German patriotism. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is their national anthem, unchanged. Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles. Über alles in der Welt, which translates Germany, Germany, over all, over all in the world. That's such a odd position to be in because, you know, as a German, there's a lot of good things that the country is responsible for. They lead the EU and Angela Merkel is a, is a huge part of the mm. global political economy. You know, why shouldn't they be proud? But at the same time, <laughs> given their history, that's a really tough. I'd be interested to speak with a German national about how, how they navigate that. Very managed patriotism. I thought of uh, staying on the music thing. I thought of country music in general, mm. which, uh, you know, they kind of subdivide their, you know, their fatherland per se, because a lot of times that will be first America, second the South or something like that. But sometimes it'll have like multiple layers of patriotism and there's a lot of pride. And there's also the idea that my boots are better than your city shoes uh, and that sort of thing. So there's definitely um, a feeling of superiority. Yeah. Yeah. I think country music artists have sort of taken that as their turf, especially in the wake of 9-11. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of those songs were so cloyingly patriotic that it was it could almost be a parody in another context. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a good example. Okay, so let's talk about some benefits of patriotism. One that I was thinking of is that people who care about their country are more likely to act in the country's interest, even if it costs them something, than if they don't care about the country. In other words, patriotism can lead to 
people working together and self-sacrificing for the country's good. You think of food rations during World War II or... War bonds. Or bonds, mm -hmm. right? The idea is summarized for me in John F. Kennedy's 1961 statement. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is a serious benefit to that sort of like love of country that you will pull together, you work together, you'll, America's going to put a man on the moon, he said, you know, and America did it. I think you see that more nowadays in, in terms of natural disasters, even ones that are abroad. They say, you know, Americans have given X amount to, you know, the fund that helps Filipinos recover from the tsunami or, or, or what have you. And I think as Americans, we feel proud about that and that there's a sort of echo chamber of let's give more and then it snowballs from there. So in, in terms of, of humanitarian aid and, and our willingness to give, yeah, patriotism, I think, plays into that. One of the interesting ideas about patriotism is that you fight for the ideals of the country. And in America in particular, I think back to Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963. Where does he march for his I Have a Dream speech? To D.C. Yeah, he, he marches to Washington, D.C. to the land of the monuments of America's greatness and symbols of American power. And he loads that speech with patriotic references. And essentially, he argues that He's calling America to be America, that mm -hmm. America is currently not being America with respect to black people. And he, as a black person, is coming to cash a check. That's Here, brilliant. It's, it's really cool. Here's what he said. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great faults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. And 
what do you say to that what do you are you no you're wrong martin that's not what the constitution it does say all men right so how do you argue against that especially as like you know a a full-blooded american he's he's using the constitution against not even against but as an insurance to to his whole idea and it's it's very effective yeah he's he's calling people back to their roots of what it means to be patriotic and he is in a very powerful way stirring up their hearts towards a change of attitude that is in line with the ideal America. That's an example of patriotism benefiting a society where it's sort of put into use to convince people to treat each other better. And it fuels positive change and transformation. Right. The downsides of patriotism, we should talk about those as well, is when it divides people, right? Think of the Mexican-American border, for example. Mm -hmm. You have people on either side of that border. On one side and the other, they speak the same language, Spanish. And one side and the other, they eat the same kind of food. They like the same sports team, uh, or sports teams probably. And, the, you know, the, there, there is an ethnic similarity on either sides of that border, but why, why is one Mexican and the other American? Well, it's just because there's this artificial line at the Rio Grande or wh wherever the line is. And what, where does that line even come from? Some conflict that happened a long time ago between nations, you know, that don't even feel that way towards each other anymore. And they just they carved it and said, this is this is the line. And it, it's just a sort of an accident of history that there's a barrier there and not somewhere else. Right. And yet, because that barrier's there, it means that you're not supposed to, what, look at the other person the same as you? Well, I think that's where one of the detriments of patriotism comes in, which is exceptionalism. I'm better than them. Mm -hmm. And that is a sort of arbitrary measurement. It's not even a measurement. It's an arbitrary way of thinking because you don't know who you're talking about. Are you talking about the entire Mexican people? It's a reductive and foolish way to think. And yet a lot of people think that way. It's a very easy mindset to slip into. It is interesting when, Sean, you talked about the Rio Grande and, you know, that's where the river flows. And in so many places, you know, for, throughout so much of history, that's been uh, what's decided it, or treaties or other countries have determined your borders for you. It is interesting how arbitrary nations can be sometimes. And yet, especially when you're born into one and that's all you've known, you can work yourself up to a fevered pitch of patriotism. And also, I think there's a GIF out there somewhere. I think it's centered on Europe, but it looks at how the borders have changed over the years. And it's, it's super fascinating. And these decisions of where the borders are drawn are not made by the common people. They're made by the political elite. Mm -hmm. And Who those can benefit and, from it at that time. Right. And then those attitudes that come along with that border, you know, if you identify with one country and then all of a sudden your border gets extended and you're in another country and then you want to secede and all those feelings like that comes from an extremely small segment that is extremely powerful uh, of society in your in your country mm -hmm. I think the problem with patriotism taken to an extreme especially is that it can be divisive it can lead to xenophobia it can lead to mm -hmm. racism and ultimately violating people's human rights and dehumanizing them and war crimes there's probably no more stereotypical model of extreme patriotism than Nazism mm -hmm. 
in the middle of the last century. And probably no better example of Nazism than the famous Hermann Goring, who in 1946, during his Nuremberg trials, was interviewed by a man named Gilbert. And I just want to read a transcript of a couple of lines here. Goring says, Why, of course, the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece? Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it's a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament, or a communist dictatorship. His interviewer, Gilbert, says, There's one difference. In a democracy, the people have some say in the matter through their elected representatives. And in the United States, only Congress can declare wars. Goring, oh, that is all well and good. But voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to do the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked, and denounce the pacifists for their lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. <laughs> Isn't that just crazy? Yeah, yeah, it's chilling. And then how they carried it out. Here's an example of patriotism being used by the Nazis to get people to fight wars that are unjustified. And again, it goes back to the idea of a very small group of people it does yeah. controlling a very a, a large group of people and mobilizing because one man can't enact his will on a global level it takes hundreds of thousands of people patriotism is a pretty complicated idea because on the one on the one hand it's the idea of loving the your native country and it, there's a lot of reason why you should love your native country, especially if it provided a stable environment for you to grow and flourish and receive an education, especially if that education was paid for, not by you, you know? Yeah. And so I think there is a, an appropriate gratitude towards a country that does provide a good home, relatively speaking. But then there's the other side where it slips into superiority. Mm. Very easily, I would say. The analogy I think of is this one time a friend was over at my house and he left. He went home. Sometime after that, we discovered that a purse was missing. It wasn't my mom's purse. There was a, a friend over, a couple friends or something of my parents over. And the woman just could not find her purse or no, it was the money in her purse or something. You mm -hmm. know, he, he, uh, and so process of elimination uh, my father determined it must have been this this young man who had come into the house. And so dad and I went to confront him to his house. And his mother answered the door. We rang the doorbell. We waited. She answered the door. And my dad very diplomatically explained the situation and said, I want to talk to your son. Can you bring him out here? Because I believe he stole from my house and her immediate knee-jerk reaction was oh my son would never do such a thing there's no way you there must be some misunderstanding here and she and she she starts laying it on pretty thick and if you know who know my dad he's not gonna like back down because a mother is 
just being defensive. No. <laughs> and I'm just like standing there awkwardly as a teenager would in such a situation. <laughs> like this guy is not my friend anymore after this. Like whether he did it or not, it's over. <laughs> right. The kid was, he was in the house, not too far from the door. He heard everything that was going on and he sensed the tension and uh, he came forward. He kind of nudged his mom out of the way and said, here's the money. Sorry. Because he knew it was him, and wow. he knew he was busted, and he just wanted to come clean on it. Right. And I feel like that's patriotism a lot of times, just being the mother and being like, oh, America would never do that. There's no way that America would use torture in in, in a legal manner or whatever. You know, you have this, like, motherly, yeah. you know, this is my boy, right or wrong kind of mentality. I think what you're talking about, it happened on a national level during Vietnam, the My Lai Massacre. This was an incident that occurred in Vietnam where a squad of soldiers basically went in and, and, and the numbers differ, but killed between 300 and 500 unarmed Vietnamese in a village. And when this was exposed, there was a huge national... Denial? There was denial, but then, but then the evidence was kind of hard to push back against. And not only Seymour Hersh, but a lot of the photos had a lot to do with ending the war. And you know the photos I'm talking about. The little girl running from napalm. The North Vietnamese soldier that's that's getting executed. You know, these are really iconic photos where... I don't know that you saw those kinds of images during World War II or during the Korean War. Vietnam strikes me as the first war that sort of the horrors of it and, and things that were perpetrated on both sides of the conflict mm. were brought to the fore and, and, and landed on dinner tables throughout the United States and... It's a complicated thing. What do you can you still support America and in your own mind process that yeah, American soldiers did this? There's a dissonance there and I think you can, you know, if you take a nuanced view of of war in your country. But yeah, with your story about the mom, it's a very uh it's hard. How do people process those two ideas that the United States military has done horrific things in foreign lands and yet I can still love my country. Yeah. Well, it's not just the military. America exports an incredible amount of pornography all around the world. And pornography, as we've discussed previously, really causes emotional pain and dysfunction. And it has a litany of detrimental effects on people, as well as the exploitation of poor people in undeveloped countries. You know? Yeah, labor. Um, so you have America's sins, right? If we're going mm -hmm. to talk about America as an example, because patriotism can happen in any country, obviously. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it but happens in every country, yeah. 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 But then you have on the other side of it, these virtues of America, right? You have America excels in humanitarian aid, as you mentioned before, Dan. Furthermore, our professional sports are unequaled in the world, except for soccer, obviously. But uh, is, that, is that virtue number two? Or <laughs> athleticism? Uh, maybe it's not a virtue. Okay, so it's not a virtue, but it's something to be proud of right. about your country. It's, right. like, it's, it's our resume. Point. Think of like when the Olympic dream team for basketball came together. Yeah. And they beat Russia like 105 to 80 or something. You know, uh -huh. it, was, it was a huge moment for yeah. American patriotism. And, and I think justifiably so. Like for whatever reason, we as Americans are good at organizing ourselves and playing sports on a high level in many different arenas. And then you look at technological innovation. America it really comes out with inventions and makes people's lives better. So all those negative things that you said before and that I also said are true, and these positive things and many others on either side of it. 
And the problem with patriotism is when we oversimplify it to the mother defending her son rather than be like, all right, I can be grateful to my country even if they're doing bad things in other ways. And you can um, talk about those bad things while simultaneously being a patriot. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the cool thing about America. Yes. Is that <laughs> America has this ideal of free speech. Yes. And this whole notion of freedom, right? And we could debate the degree to which we do actually have freedom or free speech. But at least the ideal is part of the fabric of patriotism. If I make a YouTube video and I criticize Barack Obama, there aren't secret police that are going to show up at my door. In Turkey... You'll probably tap your phone, though. Yeah, probably. Well, it's, it's, it's already tapped. Right. <laughs> it's, it's already tapped. <laughs> One more bug. But oh, that was a low blow. <laughs> I, uh, I recently read about this case out of Turkey where the, the president over there, Erdogan, he wants Angela Merkel to prosecute, I believe it's a Turkish citizen, for making fun of him on German national television. I believe that's the gist of the story. So he wants basically the German chancellor and the head of the EU to bring charges against this person. And he, and he cites an obscure law. You know, we don't have that in the U.S. And that is definitely something to be proud of. You reminded me of Rick Warren's inaugural prayer for Barack Obama when he first got into office. And when he said... Now today, we rejoice not only in America's peaceful transfer of power for the 44th time. We celebrate a hinge point of history with the inauguration of our first African-American President of the United States. And he went on from there when he said, a peaceful transfer of power for the 44th time. Mm. I had never even thought about that at all. It, I just always took it for granted. Okay, yeah. people get passionate and they, and they shout and they, and they go to rallies, but then like the red or the blue on the map wins and mm-hmm. then right. that person takes power. And Whereas in other countries, it's always an issue of the transfer of power. Certain other countries, I don't want to say other countries, but yeah, like... Political unrest erupted in so-and-so, and the president there is trying to extend the term limits beyond the constitution of that country. Like, that's such a... That's so mm-hmm. normal today. You yeah. see it over and over. That's that, a good point that he makes. Yeah. That's something to be proud of about America, that there is power transfer from one ruler to another within a specified term, and it's a peaceful transfer. Let's bring in the Christian perspective and talk about Jesus. I just, I just want to start this off by talking about Roman occupation and patriotism in the time of Christ. Many of us, especially those of us who live in fairly stable societies, imagine Jesus lived in a stable society where there was a clear separation between church and state. But Jesus lives on a precipice. Mm-hmm. Before he's born, there are protest movements. During his lifetime, you have it. Within 30 years, there's the great Jewish war of independence against the Romans, where it takes something like 60,000 Roman troops to quell the rebellion. And in the process, they destroy the Jewish temple that had stood there on that site for 500 years. So Jesus lives in a tumultuous time where he's living in an occupied nation. Think of India in the time of Gandhi or America during the 1770s and you get a, a sense, or maybe like the 1750s, you get a sense of 
what Jesus' political climate was. Right. And then the sort of questions they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What do you think? These issues are on people's minds. Yeah. Well, complicate it with this. Jews have every reason to be patriotic because they believe God gave the land to Abraham. They believe they literally call it the promised land. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's the perfect mix of religion and politics when it comes to wars of independence for Jews in Israel. Yeah. It's like you a know. theistic entitlement type. Yeah. Yeah. Mindset. So a lot of things Americans try to claim for themselves, the super patriotic Christians that they try to claim for themselves, the Jews of that day actually had. Yeah. So, you know, these things are all part of the, the cultural fabric. They have every reason in the world to be patriotic in, in a appropriate God gave us this land sense. And yet you have these Romans and Jesus is operating in that context. So like, it's conspicuous that he does not initiate some sort of, especially as somebody claiming to be the Messiah, right. that he does not initiate some sort of protest movement. He doesn't stockpile weapons. Mm-hmm. And he even tells his followers, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee. Can you imagine? I mean, think of like 1776 in America, and it's like when you see the British coming on their ships... Run to Canada and don't fight them. Like, that's the equivalent. And that's what the Christians did in 66 to 74 during that, during that war. They fled Jerusalem. They went to a city called Pella, and they did not participate in the Jewish War of Independence. And so when the Jews mm. lost that war, it caused a major rift between Jewish Christians and traditional Jews. And it almost sounds like what I'm saying is Jesus is apatriotic or he's a cosmopolitanist. But Jesus is doing something, and it's powerful, and it's changing people, and the leaders do perceive him as a threat, and they do execute him for being a threat to Rome. So I I don't want to go so far to the side and say, oh, Jesus is not—he doesn't really care about politics or anything. He's super political. You know, like John Howard Yoder's book called The Politics of Jesus, and and he sort of like recovers Mm -hmm. the, the idea that Jesus is a political person because there is no separation between religion and politics in the ancient world. So he is deeply political and deeply religious, but he's not doing it in the traditional... Right, he's not working within their framework. It's a different paradigm that he's supporting and and trying to get out there. Right, and so he's teaching people how to live the kingdom in the present as a testimony of the future that's to come. He's engaging with people. He's, He's righting wrongs all over the place. He's bringing to bear restoration miracles you know he's touching a leper to heal him he brings the town prostitute back into relationship restores her to a position of forgiveness with the community with the community Mm -hmm. as well he's doing all this stuff at the same time he is preaching a politically threatening message repent the kingdom of god is at hand and he does prophesy about the coming kingdom. He knows Daniel, the prophet, who says that the kingdom of God is like a rock that is cut out without hands, and it hits this statue representing all these different kingdoms on the feet, and it explodes it to smithereens. And then that mountain itself, or that rock itself, becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. So this is a prophecy about the kingdom. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That is coded Daniel language for Daniel chapter 7 in this vision. And it says that all the kingdoms are going to serve and obey the Son of Man. It's very unsurprising that the political elites in the Jewish and Roman government viewed him as a threat. 
Right. So I, I don't want to say that he's not political or not patriotic. I think he is to a large. I think he loves Israel. You know, he weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, how I would wish to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. Jesus knows that things are going to change, too, after he's, he does his work of, you know, his passion and his resurrection. He knows things are going to change. And that change is significant as well because Christianity goes from sort of like the late stage of Jewish messianism to this international embracing of all peoples, tribes, and languages, faith, a lot of the old patriotic ideals kind of fall by the wayside, all the while looking forward to a patriotic age where the Messiah returns to mm -hmm. conquer Rome and all the other nations. Yeah, you describe patriotism, Sean, as the feeling of love for one's native country. And there's no question in my mind that Christ, like you said, crying over Jerusalem, loved Israel so much. But in terms of um, in terms of pride and joy, which I think other things that we often associate with patriotism, that was for the coming kingdom, um, where his pride and joy would be. And the, the cool thing about the coming kingdom, too, when we read in like Revelation 5, 9 and 10, it says that the beautiful image of the kingdom is multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and, and, and since the king, kingdom is like this global empire, you know, it is inherently a, a patriotic system or, or whatever you would call that. Do you guys want to bring in anything about the Christian perspective? And I think we'd be remiss to not discuss military service. I don't think we should. No. It's a whole I, other topic. Right, but if I'm if I'm listening to a podcast about patriotism and we don't talk about the military, I'm going to be like, you guys copped out on that. I think it's too complicated of an issue to raise at this point. All right. If you feel like you can... A little aside. I feel like if you if you can say it briefly... Is it a can of worms? Yeah, it's a can of worms. Well, I mean, from my perspective, it's clear as Jesus says to love your enemies. So, like, yes. killing them on behalf of your country is obviously a sin. But what if you're cooking the food that the guy eats who's killing them? Is, is that a sin? What if you're paying your taxes? Jesus says pay your taxes. Part of that goes to support the military. You know, what if the military is fighting a just war, an unjust war? What if you can't say no and, it, and they're going to kill you if you're fighting? But maybe you could say it briefly. Well, I would just basically say the same thing <laughs> you did. Uh, it says clearly says love, love our enemies. We can't and you look at the example of Jesus, you can't say that Jesus had any mind to violence, whether or not it was justified. I'm not disparaging people that join the military. And I think some people in their own hearts and minds have no choice. They have a sense of duty and they feel that they have to join the military. And if they didn't, then it would create problems for them or whatever, like in their own heart. I think one of the issues with the military relates to allegiance. And what Christ calls us to is to give the kingdom our allegiance and to be citizens of the kingdom. And obviously you can have dual citizenship. If you're born in America, for example, you're an American citizen. You didn't disavow that. My point is that the kingdom citizenship always has to take precedence yes. over whatever country of the world you find yourself. Yes. And we have solid biblical grounding to say that because, for example, in Acts chapter 5, we read in verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them 
but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So It's black and white right there. Yeah, and when it comes down to it, if God commands us to love our enemies or to forgive or to preach the gospel or whatever God commands us to do, then that has to take precedence over what a nation of this world or our friends or our parents or our spouse or our kids commands us to do. We have to go with what God says over what what people say. So that's, of course, a big subject, and we don't really have time to get into all the nuances of it, but I do want to bring on board just in the little bit of time we have left here, some of the statements in particular that the Apostle Paul made Mm. in Romans 13, because what he says there is that we're supposed to be subject to the governing authorities and that we should look at these authorities as in some way instituted by God and to the degree that they punish evildoers and use the sword, use violence in a just manner, they are the servants of God. And we should fear them. And we should be good citizens. And he says, therefore, this is Romans 13, 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Romans 13, 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And then Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 2.17 when he says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now here is the crazy thing about Paul and Peter. The emperor at the time of their writing is probably Nero, a complete psychopath who ends up murdering Christians in torturous ways, sewing them up in animal skins and lighting them afire in his outdoor garden at night. Mm. Sounds like a charming guy. Yeah. Yeah. Total wacko, even by secular standards. And they're saying, honor Nero. So there's a radical sense of, I don't know what you want to call it. I think you would call it, well... Honoring authority, I guess. Yeah, honoring authority and whether or not we agree with them. Mm -hmm. Right. So many things uh, like that in the New Testament happen in such an extreme context, too. It gives us um, an extreme example, and we live, you know, in a fairly modern um, nation, and we know that if the believers then were expected to uphold that standard in that extreme society, God will empower us to do that today. Here's what's so interesting about it, too, is that, you know, he's writing this epistle to the Romans in the city of Rome, where the emperor lives, and... It's got to be mind-blowing. Yeah, it's like writing it to Washington, D.C., right? Mm -hmm. And um, here's what's interesting about it. He honors the emperor. He pays his taxes. He's a good citizen. But in the end, he will not bow to Caesar. That's an important distinction. Isn't that something? So Paul gets executed during Nero's persecution or around that time period. And Paul gets executed. He He gets beheaded because he won't forsake his Christianity. And so is the pattern going forward after him where time after time after time Christians are brought to the arena. They're, they're, they're commanded to offer incense to the image of Caesar or to forsake Christ and they won't do it. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and there's a political subversiveness to that because they won't give the loyalty that everyone else gives, but at the same time, they do give honor and they pay taxes. Yeah. So it's really a nuanced position that Christianity offers. And I also think the bottom line can be found in Philippians 3.20 where it says our citizenship's in heaven and we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the bottom line, that our citizenship is stored in heaven. It's interesting, too, because it's very popular to make fun of the president, even for <laughs> Christians. And it's not honoring to the governing authorities to ridicule them. Mm. In America, we are free to critique, mm -hmm. okay? But there's a difference between critique and making fun of somebody or slandering them or just adding on attacks. And, yeah. As Christians, we, we often fall into that pattern, and, and we see the mm -hmm. example of the comedians on late night, and we're like, oh, that's so funny. You know, they made fun of this one again or that one again. Well, look, that's not really appropriate for us. No, and even, you know, conservative radio, you know, some of the things they say, like, Obama's a Muslim Kenyan terrorist or whatever, but you're also leading other people who self-identify as Christians down that path of thinking. It's just... It, it strikes me as, as sort of dangerous if I'm, a, if, I, if I'm on the radio and saying these things, given what the Bible says about, about exactly that type of behavior. Do you have a point about any of this? Um, I have like other like random outlying things. We'll throw them in. Okay. I really appreciate, well, certainly honoring your nation and the people involved, but I really appreciate First Timothy 2, where we're told not just to honor, um, but we're also urged then to pray for people who are in power. Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Then he goes on to say, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So even back in the day, looking to the people in Rome, pray for them, pray for their salvation, pray for wisdom and leadership. Growing up, there was uh, a guy in my church who used to quote this verse all the time, and this is from Isaiah 33, and it really resonates uh, with us as Americans, I think, because of the nature of the branches of government that we have. But this looks forward to the kingdom. And I'm going to read Isaiah 33, verses 20 through 22. Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. No muddy ship will sail them. And then this verse that corresponds to, interestingly, our branches of government. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. And we look forward to the kingdom where, uh, you know, we, we're proud of our government that we have here in America, but we know there's corruption all through it. We have this promise to look forward to that the Lord um, in all his holiness and sovereignty and justice will be judge, lawgiver, king. He is the one who will save us. I appreciate you bringing that up, Rose. I think that's a healthy perspective to have and a hopeful perspective to have because it's easy to get cynical or to feel hopeless. One other point I wanted to bring in just towards the end here is that Christianity, once Philip converts that African, yeah, the Ethiopian treasurer. At that moment, Christianity, I think, goes public. People don't all get on board with that. 
eventually then Peter has to go convert the first Italian and then right. Paul has to go convert the first Greek. And, you know, eventually the understanding comes that, Hey, this is not just a distinctly Jewish or nationalistic thing anymore. This is a, this is an international global family because of the nature of that Christianity mitigates patriotism. It, it limits it from getting out of bounds because a turban wearing Arab who despises America but follows Christ is more my brother than the apple pie eating, football watching, flag saluting American who doesn't name Jesus as Lord. Maybe to some people that's a shocking statement. Well, aren't we supposed to hate the Arabs? No, we're not supposed to hate the Arabs. Where'd that's, you get that idea from? That's a distinction that <laughs> doesn't track with what you said before. He, he's not a he's not an he's not just an Arab. He's an American despising Arab. Okay, right, right. He doesn't so like to be what fair, does yeah. That statement didn't shock me, but I think, yeah, I think a lot of people would be like, whoa, Sean, easy. Right. You know, but at the end of the day, our citizenship is in heaven. Well, look at Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus is a Middle Easterner. He probably wore a turban himself. He probably <laughs> ate the same kind of food they eat. Sean, Jesus was white. <laughs> <laughs> He's never seen the pictures. So, you know, it's, it's not a question of, of race or nationality. It's a yeah. question of... Are you part of the people of God? Are you a child of God? And it doesn't matter your skin or your language or what kind of food you eat or if you, what you look like. What matters is, are you part of the family of God? And if you are part of the family of God and you're, you're following Christ, then you are my sister. You are my brother. And our countries might want to kill each other. Yet, I stand in solidarity with you because you name the name of Christ. So... Um, what are some just concluding thoughts? Do either of you want to... Philippians 3.20. The, the beginning and the end. <laughs> but our citizenship is, citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think mm -hmm. there's anything wrong with uh, patriotism, but you have to examine your heart. You have to examine what the Scripture says and take it on a case-by-case -case basis of, is the situation I'm in or might be in? Is there any biblical wisdom that can be applied here? and apply it. You can't just generalize when it comes to an issue like this. I think Christianity has a lot to say to patriotism, and this is a subject that's worth your time to think about. Yeah, I mean, I would just boil it down to absolutely show honor to your country. It's okay to love your country, but when it comes to devotion, all devotion must go to God. And, you know, when there is a conflict of interest per se, always give of yourself to God. Um, and then, you know, any leftovers you can give to your country. But God gets your first fruits. And these are hard issues, and I don't think we're sitting here and, and saying that we have all the answers. We looked at several cases and what the Bible said about them, but I'm sure there are, are a dozen out there that are really fraught. And, you know, what do you do in the situation? I think it's always, as with everything, important to go to God in prayer with, you know, what you might be facing and seek wisdom. We do have good guidelines, but where there are gray areas, um, yeah, seeking God, and he will be found. All right, let's uh, sign off. Who wants to go first? Thanks for listening. Uh, as always, please visit reststudio.org. Leave us feedback. We'd love to hear what you think. Negative, positive, benign, whatever. Uh, we, we love to engage with anyone that might be listening out there. So thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening. Uh, we hope it was food for thought. We hope you can have good discussions even with people um, in your life as a result of this. And yeah, send the comments our way. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next time to talk about relativism, so stay tuned. Ciao. Boom. Ciao. <laughs> <laughs>
You should, <laughs> you should just totally like you'll have five seconds of, of silence and then just and then just roast ciao. <laughs> <laughs> that'll that'll always be the sign off. <laughs> I don't know what I've said and what I haven't. What languages I haven't been keeping track.